Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. You know, we've been technical for a while here. I think we're going to go into a little bit of the spiritual with Mark West Moquette. He's a mindful stargazing expert. I like that title an astronomer, an author, and a Zen teacher. Mark holds a PhD in astrophysics and was a professional astronomer before switching gears and now teaches yoga and mindfulness full-time. Mark has been studying Zen with Zen master Daizen Skinner from Zen Ways for over 10 years. In 2015, he spent a period as a Zen monk and in 2016 was given permission to teach Dharma. He is the author of three books about mindful stargazing, Mindful Thoughts for Stargazing 2019, Stars, A Practical Guide to the Key Constellations, and The Mindfulness Universe, 2020. His latest book, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People, was published last year. You can find all his social media and links to buy his books on the restoringdarkness.com website. But right now, it's my pleasure to be with Mark. How are you, Mark? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, great to be here. So this movement the darkness restoration and preservation movement is, is it's kind of evolving some like night restoration, darkness from night, you know, we're kind of working on it has a massive spiritual element in your practice, in your Zen practice and in your coaching and your teaching, how do you incorporate that into, into what you're trying to help with mindfulness and that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, Considering the night sky and the nighttime environment for most people, especially when it comes to like your mindfulness practice is so far out of what people would normally associate with mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, it's like we've got the whole day waking hours and all we do in the daytime and the nighttime, uh, you know, as, a, as I'm sure you're aware, like nighttime, we're mostly asleep and, and we just forget that the night even exists. Mm -hmm. And especially if you live in a city and, you you know, lights and things like that. So um, kind of bringing people's attention to the fact that we can go out at nighttime and practice mindfulness, practice being in our present moment experience, practice being like uh, there present with the sounds and the breeze, but also the beautiful sky just as it is um, can can open up. I feel like I found it opens up a a whole new window, you know, on people's experience of, of how you can be present with your environment. 
You know, I think Ray Charles said the nighttime is the right time, right? To be with the one you love. But also, I think it is, it's also to, you know, the embracing of darkness. Like it's almost, you know, if you look at it from a religious perspective or an anthropological perspective or this fear of the night, you know, the <clears throat> what lurks out in the night. And, you know, while we were conquering the night, while we were introducing electric light, into our lives, yes, we introduced more safety. I'm not going to make the argument that electric light at night does not increase safety. It does. But there is something that was lost when we did that. Yes, we were afraid of the night, but we were also awe-inspired by um, beautiful starlit skies. We, we told stories around campfires where we were coming to stay safe. Um, so we've, in, in our conquering of that fear with, with electric light, We've also lost something incrementally and that our grandparents knew well and our great-grandparents knew well. Is there a path to rediscovery of this, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I think I totally agree with what you're saying. And I perhaps might extend it to further and say, um, if you look back into the history of humanity, like from the beginning, maybe two or 300,000 years of humans, human homo sapiens, then over those hundreds of thousands of years, um, it's only been the last, I don't know, 100 years where we've been, mm -hmm. you know, in this kind of lit environment where we've, we've had heating and it's, it's easy to be inside. So all those hundreds of thousands of years we have, I'm sure that if you ask most people, maybe even everyone from that period, what's going on in the sky right now? They'd just instantly be able to tell you that, oh, the, the Venus is coming up in the morning and Jupiter's in the south, you know, that mm. kind of thing. Uh, because that people are just so much more in touch. And it's not just because, like, it's it's just because it's awe-inspiring, because it's useful. People mm. needed to know where, you know, where things were and things. So, um, like, astronomy, for that reason, is the oldest science because mm. just for necessity, people mm. needed to know when to plant the crops, what time of year it was. And so astronomy has this kind of real deep, deep, deep connection with what it means to be a human and what it means to live on this planet and to be in touch with the seasons and the rhythms and, um, you know, and, and the changing nature. And so as soon as we start to introduce heating and lighting, as you say, then it's just this move away from being in touch with those rhythms and that uh, those changes. And now I suppose we don't even need to worry that it's getting colder or warmer. You know, we just adjust our temperatures and we adjust mm. our lighting. So we're no longer like, it. it's a sort of, mm, I'd say it's like a um, almost essential to our DNA of being a human, I would mm. say, you know, to, to know what it is to be, to, to look up and see the stars. I think it's one of the saddest things of our, like, you know, progress, if you like, as being humans, that we lose touch with this, with these with these very natural rhythms and, and um, environments. So you ask, what can we do? I mean, I think that, um, um, it's very, very easy, right? To, to be able to step outside and and look and see and notice. Uh, I think people have this idea that if I want to do astronomy and I want to stargaze, it has to be the perfect dark night. 
and mm. it has to be really, really, you know, I have to mm. get away from the street lights and things like that. Sure. But actually, what the, what mindfulness does? So mindfulness is a practice of being present with things as they are. You know, we're not trying to change anything. We're not trying to um, mm. judge it to be good or bad or the way we want it to be or not. And so if we're doing this in the in the spirit of mindfulness, then we just step outside and we see what we see. You know, it's not the way it should be or shouldn't be. We just notice. And so mm. maybe it's a bit cloudy. Maybe there are some stars between the clouds. Maybe it's clear. But we're just like kind of inhabiting that moment. Maybe there's lots of street lights around. Maybe is like noise of the sirens or you know mm. whatever it might be. Uh, we're just there with things as they are. And it's like we take a little moment to to slow down and to um, appreciate what things are like right now. And it's very different in the nighttime compared to the daytime. Like I always sort of make the analogy like, okay, you can go out in the daytime and like people love sunbathing, right? So you know what it's like to be under the sun, to mm -hmm. feel the warmth of the sure. sun and, you know, the brightness and things. Mm -hmm. So what's it like at nighttime? To be under like the starlight right sure. so it it feels quite a lot different but we just forget i think i think that's interesting there's almost like this frenetic energy to change things or something that that in order for you to live a meaningful life you have to change everything or things we need to restore darkness there's a call to action there and I, I like this idea of when when in the mindfulness moment, you just accept what is and th that there's beauty to be found at all times around you. And with a c contentness in the if your heart is in the right place, that you will find beauty in the guess what? The, we will find beauty in the in the creation of electric light in a sense, although we you know, there may be, you know, a, as time goes by, we may want to make those better. But I really like that idea mm, that of, right. of, of moving away from that constant negativity of, of the world as such and rather observe it as it is, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, what can we do? Like right now, we step out tonight, right? You mm -hmm. go outside. I mean, there's all the light around and yeah, okay, it's not great, but that is what it is, right? And that's what mindfulness helps us to appreciate that tonight, right here, this is how it is. And all we can do is accept it. And actually, the more we can accept it, the more we can come into this like moment and appreciate it, the more we realize, actually, it is important. <laughs> and, yes. You know, there are some there are some things I can do and some things I can change in the future. Sure. Uh, and perhaps it even spurs us on to do something. But just right now. Yes. This is how it is. I live on a farm in the in a rural area, very close to Toronto, though. But on, on a dark night, if I turn all the lights in my house off, I can see the Milky Way. It's like a little, it's like a little tiny, you can see it. If you, if you wait a bit and make sure all the lights around you are off, you can, you can start to see it. And I took my son out and it was interesting. We just lied on the grass. It was a cool fall evening. We laid on the grass and we just looked at the Milky Way for a while. I showed him where the North Star was. We were looking around at different constellations and that. And yeah, there, there wasn't, it was a real rejuvenating experience. I, I, I think about it actually every day since I think it was about a week and a half ago I thought that was actually really nice that moment of time when it, we just accepted hey that's the Milky Way right there even though you can't see it mm. that well it's always there it's it's yeah. even if you can't see it um let me ask you this is there an element and maybe maybe this offends your sensibilities but 
is there an element of this which we can make financial? So to the mindfulness part, to the, the stargazing part. I know we interviewed a lady who has a, a business where she takes people to view the scars and, and that, and we, and, we, and we start to see it. Is there an element of this for you which is, this is your business, um, and that mm. you, you're sharing <laughs> value with people and they pay for it? You understand what mm. I'm saying? Yeah, 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 totally. I've, I've thought long, long and hard about that the last couple of years because I, I really want to. Uh, so, OK, a bit about my story. Right. So I, I was an astronomer, profession, professional astronomer. I used to work in university doing research. And every now and again, we go to these big observatories and we'd have a few nights observing time. So I remember a time I was in Hawaii and I was on Mauna Kea up at the, one of the big telescopes. And at dusk, we went into the control room. You're on the computer. And at dawn, you end exit the control room, and it's the lights rising. And I, I, at that that particular occasion, I didn't look at the stars with my eyes once. And it took me some years to realise what had, what had happened. Like I'd become, like I'd just forgotten. I suppose you know I'd become so involved in my research and how important that was to me, and I'd forgotten how beautiful it was and what an amazing opportunity it was to look up at the sky. At the sky, and so. Um, then a few years went past, I left astronomy and, and uh, I, I got into teaching yoga and mindfulness and, and I've been bringing together these these two worlds, or kind of thinking about how to bring these worlds together this last few years and I really want to make it into something I do more and in order to be able to do that I need to find a way of making it pay and I, and I think that uh, so far the events that I've been running this last couple of years people find it's just like mind blowing when mm -hmm. you can contemplate your place in the universe, not just, not just looking up at the stars, but like contemplating what it is to be a human in this vast universe, you know, where we come from and how enormous time and space is compared to our lives and being on this planet and things like that. I think it, it's just so like, wow, for so many people that I really would love to share that so much more. And so, you know, like, little guided meditations, events and retreats and things. Uh, we had some great retreats this, this over the summer in, in Europe, darker skies. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's an old expression, like if you can't charge for something, it has no value. I kind of hate and love that expression by definition. You know, it, it, it's, it's tough when people, when, you, when you're speaking in this world specifically that, you know, but if somebody can guide you there, it, it's something that I, I think we need to, look at as a, as a movement, like, you know, how do we fund this movement? How do we make it more available to people, you know, by training and teaching people to do this and making it a business and a career? I mean, that's how you do it. Um, yeah. I want I studied English lit in university and uh, I dropped out, you know, me and Elon and Mark Zuckerberg, we're all in the same crowd. Well, I'm not in their crowd, but we're all dropouts um, right. of the same age and same era. But um, you know, when I was, I remember studying English lit and I had a childhood where I read the Bible a lot, a lot in my childhood. And I remember looking at some of the TAs and professors and saying, you don't understand what this story is about. Like you don't know enough about the Bible to really understand what the story is about. And I think that I would, I would make the argument that that applies to human history. If you don't understand humans relationship to the stars, like why we sent burned lamb smoke up to heaven, you know, like when we're making sacrifices, you know, people used to burn things on sacrifices. The reason why they did that is because they thought their God was up there, not because during the day, maybe, maybe because during the day, but also because the night was so majestic and they would, and they would see these, these different and relate to these different, um, 
uh, constellations in a way that was deeply spiritual for them. Um, would you, how do we reestablish that, like in the, in the academy or in the professional understanding of humans, that our relationship to stars is so important? They, I mean, the Pyramid of Giza, or the Great Pyramid, is aligned mm-hmm. with the center star of Orion's belt. And every 12,000 years, the Sphinx looks at the constellation Leo at the same time as it's lined mm-hmm. up. Like, this was extremely important to us as a species. And we seem to have forgotten that or dismissed that. And I think we're missing something in understanding ourselves. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So um, I often say to people, okay, so of all views on this planet, since the beginning of humanity, like those two or 300,000 years, of all the views on this planet, every single one has changed. Hmm. Like sea levels have risen and fallen, has been glaciers and volcanoes, blah, blah, blah. The only view that all humans have ever seen that's exactly the same is the night sky. Hmm. So, you know, there's been some tiny little shifts and things, but basically the the, the pattern of the constellations, the shift of the seasons, you know, it's been the same since the beginning of and and way before humanity, like for any animals Hmm. that were able to look up and tune in. So like, it's, it's like more deeply ingrained in us than, you know, anything else on the planet because it's always been there. And I think if we can look at the look at the stars with that view, it doesn't matter what the actual constellations are, whether it's Orion or, or whatever it might be, but the patterns of stars are the same. Every single human seen the same. That's like, wow, you know, really deeply connecting to me. It's it's almost a part of our shared heritage as a as a species in a way. You 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 the stars come up in Egypt. They come up with the the sailors in the South Pacific, I don't know if they're called um, uh, Polynesians, I think is the name of their group. Yeah, where they would, dead reckoning and stargazing, they would they would travel across the Pacific Ocean in a giant canoe. And, you know, mm. um, you know, shepherds. And they, um, had to, they, they would have had to have known the stars mm-hmm. in such detail in order to be able to sail across the Pacific. They would have, yeah. to, like, like, just known it, right? That's mind blowing that they did that actually. Like there's so many things related to the stars and to sunsets and to, uh, you know, um, the way that the sun does the seasonality of the sun and the equinoxes and all that. That's actually pretty mind blowing when you, when you consider, you know, how they figured that out and the, how their relationship to it would have been generational, like many generations to build that knowledge yeah. and teach it and build the Stonehenge. Um, I know there's a spot in yeah, Ireland exactly. too, where on a certain time of the year, the entire cave is lit up by the sun. I can't remember what it's called, but I visited it when I was younger. And all these relationships we have, we abandoned them at our peril, Mark. And, I, and, and we've clearly abandoned them in terms of our daily lives. And, and like you said, in reestablishing them through mindfulness. How can people keep that going in a practice? It's so chaotic and hectic. How do you coach them to, to, to continue to, to deal with the night and be out in the night? So I, I think there are two, two main things that are coming up for me just as you're talking so you've got the the stories so uh, the stories that are connected to the constellations are humans oldest stories pre predating literature and all that stuff and we in the west we get passed down the stories which come from you know um Ro- greek and um mesopotamian kind of region but um you know there are many many stories from many cultures they say like polynesians and native australians and russians and all that kind of they all have their own stories and connecting like listening to these stories are one of the ways which we can just refine that 
you know, that connection to human humanity. Um, and, and perhaps even making sure they get recorded because a lot of them have lot mm-hmm. lost. Right? Um, right. So I think, that, yeah. Mm. And th- then the other one would be um, taking away all of the stories and all of the technology and all of the apps, you know, and all of the kind of like thought around it and just going out, like you say, like out into a field, lie down and we're not trying to work out what we're trying to look at. We're not trying to figure out what constellation. We're just looking. And, um, you know, when you, when your eyes adjust, as you say, like you see the little bits of the Milky Way and it's like suddenly there's this whole world opens up. This whole universe opens up. And actually, when we touch into what they like, this sense of awe, you know, mm. it's it's a true emotion, the emotion of awe where we find something which is much, much bigger than ourselves. And we feel like this little small human on the planet's surface looking up at this vastness, you know, that extends off to infinity. And that feeling of like, wow, you know, is deeply important for our our mental well-being, you know, to sort of get things in perspective and just realize that there's more to it, more to this, this world than just my own little dramas and issues and stresses. You know, this, we're, we're living on this tiny little planet immersed in this vast cosmos. And uh, what does that mean when I get stuck in traffic on a Monday morning? <laughs> well, you know, what? I, I think we can even, I think you can even, if I dare say to you, I think you can even go lower because oftentimes, you know, you talk about the knowledge that we have from astronomy, like modern astronomy. You know, the the uh, the Earth spins around the sun at fourteen thousand kilometers an hour, and the sun spins around the Milky Way at eleven hundred and fifteen, whatever it is. All these numbers, and like the technical massiveness is known, and you can say that to people, but I don't think it's necessary to inspire the awe. You, you understand what I mean? Like our ancestors didn't know that that light was 16 billion light years away or whatever. And they were still had their minds blown by, by the stars. Yeah. And you know, it's like, it's almost like the technical can sometimes, it can sometimes be over-focused on, I'm not going to say ruin it, but we can over-focus on, mm. you know, how many light years away that star is. And you know, that's the, the, the whatever nebula and this is the thing, and yeah. it's this far away. I think we can get lost in that a little bit, and that's a temptation for you to be in the computer room all night and not actually go outside and look, right? You, exactly. Like we're searching for exactly. answers and knowledge instead of allowing our hearts to open up to the beauty of and majesty and sublimity mm-hmm. of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably what I've experienced with uh, many amateur stargazers as well like you, you know people go out and in an evening and they've got their telescope and they've got their laptop and they've got little maps and apps and things and they spend the entire just like i did spend the entire night taking photos and checking things and and forget to, to look up and appreciate i think you're right yeah yeah and also like mindfulness encourages to come into the felt sense like what mm. is it what does it feel like to to be here and now looking mm. up and being in this space uh, and where the facts and figures take us into like the thought world, like the concept world, where we're, we're, we're about ideas and and um, uh, and we're not actually experiencing it. We're just thinking about it, if you see what I mean. So if we put all of that to the side and we're just looking up and just kind of feeling like, what does it sound like? What is the air temperature like? What, what, how my mm. eyes are filled, there's a few clouds, you know, like there's those stars there and there's a gap there, blah, blah. You know, we're not, not thinking about it, just feeding it. That takes us into a very different space. 
Mm. You know, it, it's interesting, these rhythms. I wonder if there is, um, you know, with this, I, I don't know how you feel about astrology as an astronomer, okay? And mm. so I read astrology, I get a laugh. Um, you know, I, I, it's a, I think for some people, it's a starting point to understand themselves better, and that's where they're starting from. So it doesn't really matter whether or not it's right or not, they're just starting and they're trying to do some self-exploration in that. And so that's great, good for them. I don't believe in it necessarily. I don't know if believe in it's the, I don't know if we have the right word or have faith in it, it, it in any sense, but perhaps it's a starting point for them. But when I think about where astrology came from, it's kind of like um, alchemy. You know, it, the, 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 the belief that, that something inhabited those constellations or, or that there was messages from them and the way humans would interact with them over their entire life, they would constantly, I'm sure many cultures have different names for constellations. Not everybody calls it Orion the hunter. Okay. You know, so right. that's just what we call that particular constellation. Um, and so there's this, this relationship to us. We also know that animals also, some animals relate to the stars as well. Could mm. the stars have played some or, or, or the, the cycle of the different constellations throughout the year, could they have played some role in our evolution? Could they have contributed to us becoming the most intelligent species on the planet? Uh, is there something there that is missing that, that uh, anthropologists and scientists haven't really hit on yet? <laughs> um, let me see. Let me see if I... I... So I'm, I'm in no way qualified. I'm not an anthropologist. So this this is a podcast, um, folks. We're just talking. If you're listening to this, we're yeah, just exactly. talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that um, uh, the, the quest for trying to understand why we're here and where we're from is it, like the, the, the most fundamental of all of human questions, right? So, mm. I mean, when I was working in astronomy, um, Astronomy has no commercial use. You can't, you can't make a spin-off business from um, understanding black holes or from, you know, understanding how a star works. So it, it almost is like the purest of science in that sense. And whenever we had to write um, observing time requests or, or um, grant proposals and things, it was always a bit about why. Why, why is this important? And, you know, when it comes down to it, when you think about it, it's all comes down to this trying to understand where we're from and why we're here. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of question must must have driven humanity like. Through all of those thousands of years to try to f look further and look deeper and and, you know, we've got this incredible brain and we can put it to, you know, apply it to understanding. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's like um, before humans were evolved, maybe the pre-humans were sort of looking up and like asking those questions. And that's what drove a little bit of maybe, maybe. I mean, it makes it makes sense, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, you talk, you know, I don't know if it was Niels Bohr or Faraday or Einstein, but I know a lot of these guys came to a point in their career where they they accepted a spiritual element to life where they stopped trying mm -hmm. to chase the answer down with a club and they you know john keats talks about that negative capability a willingness to exist in uncertainty you know and, and when they you know they kind of uh, you know found their way back to spirituality 
through physics and being exhausted in finding the answer and realizing that at the end of it is just a quest to know and where, why you're here and what we're doing and why this universe is the way it is. Is that what happened to you? Are you, ser- are you, are you in the same boat as Niels Bohr or Albert Einstein with that? Mm. So in my book, The Mindful Universe, I actually mm. have a whole chapter there on looking at the, the different view, in, particularly in quantum physics, is, is very important, mm. how you can look at the world in terms of separate things or you can look at the world in terms of like waves and togetherness, right? Mm-hmm. We've got the, 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 two, the two billiard balls crashing into each other, mm-hmm. or we've got the, the wave interacting and constructively interfering, you know? It's like, you could say that's the dual, dual view and the non-dual view, like the separate things and the all is one view. And like Heisenberg was, was one of the particularly important guys, you know, he, he thought very deeply, actually ended up writing a couple of books, which you could say were quite spiritual, because he was investigating this from a mathematical and physical point of view, and then trying to understand what it all means. And then, you know, he went off and actually spoke to some of the um, uh, spiritual teachers at the time, he went to India, had to chat with a couple of couple of guys, and actually got to the point where he realized quite some deep truths about how, um, how our perspective can get very limited in this like separate things me being separate to the universe and actually quantum quantum physics itself when we look at it in detail uh, it brings us right up to this the observer makes a difference yes for sure the observer that's so, that's is part of it yes mm, absolutely and you know in in zen um we actually put this front and center like to understand how we can see the world from this other perspective where we are one with the well, we're not separate and, and distinct we're just like a different part of this whole universe um, that's um that's what they call like kind of waking up waking up to our true selves so we can it's, see it through meditation but strangely enough we can also find it through physics <laughs> well what's interesting about that observer idea is, and and that you you mentioned it it's almost like part of changing the world and the universe is simply observing it with humility. Like, like you will change it by observing it too. You don't have to do all these actions and all this kind of stuff and all the reactions that happen and the unintended consequences of whatever action you took. In some senses, we need to spend a, a significant amount of our times observing and by observing, you change the universe. Like by looking at it, it changes it. I, that's what that, that's what quantum physics tells us, is it not? That by looking at the stars, you're influencing them in some way. Isn't that not true at a quantum so, physics uh, level? Uh, may, potentially not looking at it, but being it. Right. Yes. Being with it. So. Yes. Yes. Well, well, I think it's even more. So actually being it. So, you know, you, you we know it's, there's, there's a, it's, a, it's almost like a, um such a well-known phrase isn't it like that we are made of stardust yes we are golden we're billion year old carbon yes yeah from the great song exactly so our entire our entire body is made of material that was once synthesized inside stars or indeed actually at the big bang itself so we are we're not just looking at when we look up at the night sky and we see stars we're not looking at something which is out there this is this is something I try to emphasize, you know, on the evenings where I do these mindful 
stargazing um, events. So, like, we're not looking at something which is out there. We are it. We are mm. in it. And we are actually it ourselves. Like, the universe is not something mi miles above us. And, and if you start to see, like, the hum us as a human on this planet's surface and a planet orbiting the sun, the sun in the galaxy, the galaxy in the universe, it's like, you know, where's the, where's the separation? You know, where, where, does, where does it become me and it? Uh, it it's, it's false. That's where I, you know, that, that's where all this, you know, it's a wet rock spinning a nuclear fission reaction, reactor in the center of the universe. I think all the science can clog up what's actually happening in a way. Too much, it's, yes, it's not separate. It is, it is where you are now or even part of what you are is and, and it, maybe exactly. it is what you are is and it that is what I, you are. I think that's what our ancestors knew and all the parsing like you said all the parsing of distances and there's an exoplanet around that one and there this you know there's mm -hmm. a here comes a comet over here and the comet's traveling you know, 16,000 miles per second or whatever all these numbers and i think that takes away from it at times um, not all the time, but I think sometimes it robs us of the experience of it, the distances and all that. And I think it's important that what you're saying, I want to talk a little bit about these waves and that perspective, like looking at the universe from a, from an integrated perspective that, you know, n not trying to figure out this one point or over specializing on this one point. Um, yeah. in this circadian, there's a, there's a, there's a movement right now in the lighting industry, which I work in. And that's like this circadian thing. And the solution in the lighting industry to people having problems with electric light and not receiving enough natural light is more electric light. And I think to myself, like, that's an over-focus on, you know, can we, or like a sales pitch or something that's, right. that's not actually interested in solving the problem. What we need is more natural light and natural darkness to solve our circadian rhythm problems. We need to reconnect mm. to the outside of the building. The inside of the building is never going to do that for us. It's almost like an erroneous perspective. Mm. And I feel like your mindfulness, what you're talking about there, is really where the lighting industry, sure, we need good lighting for everybody. But maybe we need to back away from some of these industrial claims or these commercial claims that we're making as an industry and change our focus away from that and allow people and this is what i'm calling for in the 21st century is the lighting industry to become the lighting and darkness industry and that we provide both mm. we don't both are commodities that can be bought and sold and so is that part of that mindfulness play where it's like there, there's too much focus on selling a light fixture here when we're trying to solve circadian rhythm issues and maybe the lighting industry should back away from that and allow the mindfulness movement to move into that space. Um, is that something that you can, you, you're, you're vibing with me on or do I have the words wrong? You know what I'm saying? You know, I think you know what I'm kind of throwing the ball at anyway. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a lot there around. Um, like, we've got a little baby, right? So six months, our little baby, mm -hmm. and this is our first child. And um, a lot of the books say, in the middle of congratulations, the day, he needs by the to way. be out. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, he he needs so he needs to be out in the bright sunlight mm. in order to help him to sleep at night time. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, you read that in the book, you're like, well. Surely that applies to everyone, you know. Okay, so babies can't take themselves out into the daylight, mm -hmm. so we have to do it for them. But 
um, we're all humans. We all, it helps us asleep at night if we're out in the daylight, in the daytime, and we get a good bit of bright sunlight. And then it also helps us to sleep well if we're in the darkness before going to bed. You know, we turn the lights down, blah, blah. So I think um, um, it's, it's again, it's just like kind of waking up to these natural rhythms and tuning in more to what my body is wanting and needing and what it says. Like if I go to bed, um, I just turn off the bright light and I go into my bedroom then look, is that different to if I have like the lights going lower and I spend some time outside and maybe I walk a dog or whatever and then I go inside? You know, how does my body experience that as something different? It's not a thought, it's a feeling. You know, I'm tuning mm -hmm. into my body and mm -hmm. what it's saying. So I think the more we can do that, the more we can align ourselves with what we need rather than like what I've read in the book. Hmm. So I think that's what, mindful, that's what mindfulness brings to this. I think I think there needs to be a corporate mindfulness movement that's that but something has to inflect into this um into the lighting industry because a, a lot of times in people in lighting industry say well the dark darkness has nothing to do with us that's not even our business uh, uh. and it's like well I, I I'm not so sure about that because the the whole existence is for you to to remove darkness um but you know, if you look at the trajectory, this, this, I'm sorry to yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I, it reminds me quite a lot of a, the difference. So, Western people have created constellations in the stars from like joining the dots. Mm -hmm. You know, this star to that star to that star. Now, there's an amazing constellation that was known to the native Australian Aboriginal people that you see in the Milky Way in the dark. So it's in the in the dark lane, the dust lanes of the Milky Way. They call it the um, the, the um, what's it called? The uh, the emu, the emu. And actually, yeah. when you see it, it's like the Colfax Nebula, and then a little bit of beak, and then you go down through, it stretches down the Milky Way, and you see the this shape of the emu. And when you see that, you're like, oh my god, a constellation <laughs> that's not in stars, but in the in the reverse image, right? Yes. So in the in the negative, you see it in the dark. And it's that kind of change of perspective, I suppose, mm. what you're talking about there. Yes. Light industry has got nothing to do with light, not darkness at all. But actually, you just flip everything around. Yes, mm. exactly. That's, exa that's exactly. And, I, and I, at first I thought, well, this is a five to ten years. We'll get this done. I think this is the issue for the 21st century for the lighting industry. To really embrace this, it's going to take a long time. And, and, and I think it's going to acquire like a, a corporate mind or like a mindfulness to descend on the industry. And to accept this as a moral duty, as an ethical duty, that and and something that we charge for, which is a lot of people don't like to muddy things with money, but you know what? That's how that's how we transact. That's how we make changes. And so right. you know, yeah. Mark Mark needs to pay for that little guy or like gal that you got. He got to pay for the got diapers guy, and the, yeah. yeah. So um, now I have four kids. If you told my wife when we when they were little that. Um, you know, that she takes them outside every day or those kids are going to go back. I don't care if it's six feet of snow outside. They're putting their snowsuits on and they're going outside because they absolutely have to go outside or they go, kids go crazy. But you're right. What's the difference between us? The goose and the gander are the same thing. We need to be outside more. I, I think that's the, for the circadian, all the circadian people that I've interviewed, everybody else, it comes down to you need light, natural sunlight during the day cannot be recreated with electricity. I'm sorry to the lighting industry. You're never going to accomplish that. And natural darkness at night cannot be recreated using um, or be mimicked 
or it should not be polluted with devices and artificial light. Otherwise, you're going to cause yourself damage. Mark, tell me final thoughts here. We're coming up on 40 minutes. We like to kind of keep it in that range sure. and, and that. Any advice from your mindfulness perspective first for the lighting industry? What, what, what can we learn from your practice in your books? Mm. So I think um, every person who works in the industry, it's important to spend some time considering and appreciating and acknowledging what it's like in their natural environment, like just where they live and where they work and things like that. And, and opening their eyes, I suppose, and just looking around. Um, you know, I, I often walk past. Yeah, it's a very good question, isn't it? It's a tricky one. Mm hmm. So it, you can chop this bit out, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But sometimes, yeah, yeah. yeah you're being um, vulnerable. Yeah. Like I think that I think that that's okay. That that's people love that. I mean, people are often afraid to be be vulnerable, and there's not. That's what people love about podcasts is the vulnerability. Mm. You know, I, I I'll I'll say this, and and I'm going to close the show up, but I'm going to keep talking to you because I know I have another five minutes with you till till noon my time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hang on to you for yeah. a little bit longer. But I I think what what I'm what I would like to see is acceptance in the lighting industry for the natural cycles of the world that cannot be replicated. There's never any way that we can replicate them. And we need to re where we can reestablish those rhythms. We have a moral obligation to do so, not just to our human beings, but to our, to the animals and the wildlife of the, of the world as well that, that are, that are out there. And, and, and so that's what, that's what I'm taking from what we've talked about. Um, I'm going to close the show up, but I'm going to come back to you. So if you, I'm going to talk to a little bit about Mark. I got five more minutes of his time. I'm going to talk to a little bit about something else he has in his bio here that doesn't relate to darkness. So if you made it all the way to the end here, you know, thanks for listening. Um, Evluma is the sponsor. Go to evluma.com. But I'm going to come back to Mark right now. I want to talk to him about difficult people. And there's five minutes mm. left in this show here. And I saw that it doesn't really relate <laughs> to dark skies, but I, yeah, I got yeah. you now. Yeah. I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. So I want to talk to you. How do you know, give me the Coles notes on that. And how do we deal with difficult people? How do we know if we're mm. one of them? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So in um, one of the, the most important teachings I've I've uh, listened to, I suppose, in in my Zen practice has been about how to deal with other people, how to deal with relationships, and particularly when they get really quite tricky. So most of the time, we're trying to avoid, or we're trying to um, um, like basically like get rid of all the difficult people in our life. Mm -hmm. But actually, those encounters with difficult people they show us such a lot about our habits and our tendencies. And um, uh, because the emotional temperature is really high in those, mm -hmm. much higher than other situations. And it could be like your partner, right? It could be your mum. Mm -hmm. It could be like someone at work. All these people that we find difficult in different situations. It's because the intensity goes up and our emotions go up and we immediately react often for out of like habits and tendencies so when we when we look at these difficult encounters with the perspective of oh i could learn something here there's this is an opportunity to learn something about me about how i am and also once i've learned once i've tuned into how i am i could i could act differently i could do something different 
I could mm. I could be kinder, you know, I could be more understanding, then actually that perspective can change a lot. So it's kind of we have this phrase, um, there are troublesome Buddha. You know, mm -hmm. in, in Zen they talk about troublesome Buddha. So it's like a Buddha as in a teacher that appears in a troublesome form, in a difficult form that's here to to maybe highlight something about ourselves. That reminds me of Arthur Schopenhauer, I think is the guy's name. Um, where he says that all human emotions should be not reacted to, but looked upon with curiosity. I thought that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. Like, why is this person acting? Act and there's a sense that you, you know, when you have these difficult relationships, we can always, like, I don't know if you've ever, you know, met a married couple that's struggling. And then you sit down mm -hmm. with the, the fella and he starts telling you about how awful his wife is. But if you actually watch them interact, there's a there's like a negative dance going on between them. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like mm -hmm. they, they, there's like they know what the other person's going to do in a sense. And I, I think you're right about that. When if we engage in these things and, and, and you're in a difficult situation to, to, to not step away from it, but maybe try to turn your emotions off a little bit and see what's actually going on. Um in that dynamic is that what so, you're suggesting uh, what so we we jump into this very initial hard stance of like you're wrong and i'm right yes that's what often happens. like you know you meet someone in the supermarket and they annoy you like you're you're in the wrong you're the problem and actually it's not you and me it's the space in between like it's the mm -hmm. relationship and it's mm -hmm. this situation that's causing so i'm reacting to something that you're doing it's not necessarily that you're doing something wrong. It's my reaction to your behavior. So then it becomes just like, oh, it's not you necessarily, but it's us. Yes. And it's this situation. So then you're exactly right. So we turn into this curiosity, like, oh, what's 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 happening here? Why am yes. why am I reacting like this? And suddenly that can change everything. Mm. I think I think it's I think, in, it's, in I think it's, mm. I think it's even it's it's also interesting to ask why the other person is reacting that way. And, uh, and uh, that, exactly. Yeah. And, and then, you know, am I, you know, am I giving bad facial expressions all of a sudden to be aware mm -hmm. of what's happening in those situations again, changes them permanently. Once you're aware of That's what's right. happening, now you can execute. Now you can maybe change the dynamic of the direction. Yeah. One of the things that I, I don't know if you have any knowledge on this, but one of the things that I've noticed um, in, in acrimonious situations, I've come to this belief uh, where I feel as if people that are in acrimonious relationships, you may have, you may just laugh at this or maybe you'll have a comment on it or not, but I feel that at a certain point they come to enjoy, I say that in quotations for the listeners, enjoy resentment and they come to dislike doing mm -hmm. something nice for that person. Like the, the emotions yeah. they're feeling is like, I, I can't wait to be upset at my husband or my wife or whatever, or my brother or whatever. And yeah. I, if it makes me feel alive when I'm angry at my mom and I'm blaming her for my life or whatever. And it's like, yeah. well, why don't you send your mom flowers? I don't want to do that. She might like it. It might make her happy. Yeah. Like I almost believe people get into those situations. You, no, you no, know totally. I'm, so I'm, absolutely, you, you're absolutely right. Totally right. Yeah. So technically if someone has identified with that negative emotion, and they mm -hmm. identify it with themselves. So I like it's basically like, I am an angry person, and if I'm not angry, I'm not myself. That's what that's what happens. 
And so people kind of like wallow in it or, or like kind of really. Yes, they enjoy it in a way. Like yeah, I'm putting enjoy enjoyment. It. That's right. Yes. No, no, you're right. You're right. And, and, and it's like, yeah. it, it's so sad actually, you know, when you, when you see it and then they, and then the, you know, the, someone passes away and they just can't, they regret the, all the wasted years of, like, who cares what happened in Christmas 1985? I'm being honest when I say that. I mean, some people have had serious trauma, but really, for most of us, it doesn't really matter all that much, Mark, you know? Um, mm. Now, I've kept you yeah, for two right. minutes so, longer than I booked. I could keep going for a little bit longer, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that's fine. I'm, I'm in oh, no rush. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, it comes down to this awareness, right? So we, mm. we see the patterns, the patterns that we always come back to, and then when we see it, then we then have a choice to change it. But if we're not seeing it, then we're just stuck in this unconscious, like repeating patterns. And that's where this really the foundation of all like meditation practice of Zen mindfulness is to bring more and more attention and awareness, not judging, it's not wrong, but it's just noticing. And the more we can see, the more we can then affect change. Mm. Well, become the observer. Um, check out Mark's mm. books. Um, the Mindful Universe, Mindful Thoughts for Stargazers, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People, I think, and Stars, A Practical Guide to the Key Constellations. Are they available on Amazon, Mark? Yep. They're available on Amazon. Yep. You can go to his website, markwestmoquette.co.uk. That's M-A-R-K-W-E-S-T-M-O-Q-U-E-T-T-E.co.co.uk. And of course... Thanks for listening. If you made it to the end, I really enjoyed this, this, my time with Mark. And I hope one day I'm over and I think he's in England. He could be somewhere else. I didn't ask him, but hopefully yeah, you right. can, right. can shake hands and, 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 and meet for the rest of you out there. You know, I love you guys. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more international dark sky association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, Suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.